Thank you for the invitation to speak here this morning. I would like to ask your help with a project I'm working on. Uh, it's been on my heart and mind for um, perhaps 30 years to write a book on the Ten Commandments. And I would like to ask your help with that. Uh, the way you can do that is by interacting with me extensively after I preach a series of sermons on the Ten Commandments. Now, Lord willing, uh, today's sermon will be the first of about 12 sermons over the coming months dealing with the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> and what you can do that would be tremendously helpful is talk to me afterwards, maybe in person, um, or send me emails with comments, questions, suggestions, uh, illustrations, stories that would be helpful. <clears throat> and in this way, I would like this congregation to become co-author of this book. Uh, I've written, I have a few books I have to finish before I get to this, and writing several books right now, but I would like this to be one of the books I work on next year, so this is not going to be tomorrow. So I would like your interaction. Uh, if, if we talk after church, I need to sit. I have a old hip injury, so it's painful for me to stand for any time, so I need to sit. If you want to talk extensively, that would be great. Otherwise, send me an email, and we'll, we'll make sure that my email address is available, but I would really like your participation. So let's uh, pray a minute. Father, we pause here together, <clears throat> and we recognize that you are the, the same God today who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, you were the same God who gave your Ten Commandments to them and through them to us. I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds as we think and discuss in your presence and in light of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I first preached a, <coughs> excuse me, I'm fighting a terrible cold. I first preached a long series of sermons on the Ten Commandments about 30 years ago when I was a young church-planting pastor serving a new congregation. And then the Lord gave me an op a special opportunity uh, to spend about 20 years teaching philosophy, ethics, and sometimes history of religions in secular universities, partly in the United States, partly in the former Soviet Union, then about a little over 10 years here in Prague. And I mention this because in that teaching experience in secular universities, where most of my students were not Christians, I learned a lot about the questions that can, we can bring to the Ten Commandments, things that will help us in applying and understanding them today. Now, most of the classes I taught were quite small, almost all with less than 25 students, many with under 15. This allowed a lot of classroom interaction. I had lots and lots of discussions with students during and after class. I usually did not, at the beginning of a semester, introduce myself and say I'm here as a Christian philosopher to teach philosophy, but I soon found that wasn't necessary because I might be teaching a class on ancient Greek philosophy and see on the students' desks that they had printed out sermons I had preached somewhere or an apologetic article I'd written for some magazine or website, so they knew all about who I was and that I was there as a Christian. I just didn't need to say that because they found that on the internet and they knew what I had to say. Uh, that was fascinating then to have them ask questions in class related really to something that I had written somewhere before. <clears throat> now, very few of my students ever identified themselves as Christians. 
fact, I, didn't, I don't think many of them were, although one time, strangely, at Charles University, about 10 years ago, I had one class with exchange students from all over Europe. Most of them were Christians. But that happened once in decades of university teaching. Most of my students regarded themselves as agnostic, atheist, or undecided, and often had more Muslims than Christians in a classroom. Now, I always tried to challenge the students to think more deeply than they had ever thought before. But I did that with kindness and gentleness and letting them feel that I would respect their process of forming their worldview. And when I did that, students often became surprisingly open with me. So they uh, sort of opened their minds so that I can see inside their minds and see what questions they were thinking about, what, what they were wrestling with. Uh, it was a real privilege they gave me. Uh, and part of what I received from those hundreds of classroom discussions was some understanding of how people feel about the Ten Commandments. Because some of the things that uh, came up in classroom discussions related to this. Uh, and so these are some of the patterns. I noticed three patterns in their minds that specifically related to Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments. And this came from hundreds of class discussions and private conversations with students. Now, many of the students thought that the biblical commandments are arbitrary or irrational, having no connection with human nature, no benefit for human happiness, uh, that they don't help us in any way. It was seldom stated so directly, but many of the students seemed to think if you want to self-destruct and have a miserable life, you will follow biblical commandments. Now, I, I didn't agree with that, of course, but that's what they seemed to think. A second thing many of the students seem to think, and this was almost universal, is that the purpose of the Ten Commandments, or any of the rules in the Bible, was to earn God's favor. If you wanted to heaven, go to heaven, if you wanted to be accepted to, by God, the thing to do is to follow the commandments. All the students seem to think that, even though no Christians have ever really said that. And third, it was a really funny pattern that many students said they were moral relativists. And by that, they either thought we can't know right and wrong or there is no universal right and wrong. And they might insist that rather strongly. But then at the same time, they would be committed, sometimes seriously, to a very few moral rules. And those very few moral rules to which they were committed were often like some of the Ten Commandments. It's the strangest thing. And it was real common. So one time I was teaching a class on the history of ancient texts about ethics, and I included in the class reading the Ten Commandments just to see what the reactions would be. They were reading other ancient texts. And I asked the students in class, as they were, dis were discussing it, um, something like, if you take out the first couple commandments that were related to Jewish religion, uh, did you learn anything from the other commandments? You know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, you shall not commit adultery, and so on. And I said, no, we knew all that. We didn't need to read that to know that. The same students who would say they are moral relativists and there's no moral, universal moral rules read the Ten Commandments and say, well, of course, we all knew that. It's the oddest thing. Sort of the self-contradictory character of human thought and experience of being two minds. So I would like us now, and in the next few months, to take a careful look at the Ten Commandments. And it's good to do that with other people, so we're not all alone. And it's good to do that with people from different countries and cultures. We each read the Bible with certain expectations and assumptions about what we hope or think will be there. We're sometimes wrong, so we sometimes read our expectations into the Bible. 
But if we do it in discussion with a lot, a lot of other people, especially people from other cultures and maybe other times, we'll be, it'll be more likely that we have a, a good, faithful reading of the Bible. So that's why I would really like your interaction as much as possible. Let's see if we can really understand what's here. Now, my, my thesis, today we're going to look at the first line that I call the preamble. And my understanding of the preamble is this, is that God has declared his redemptive ownership of his people, and with that, giving us principles to live out that implement his redemption in ways that are consistent with the norms he created inside of us. Now, throughout the Old Testament, several times over, you have a line that's very similar. God says, I am your God, and you are my people. The wording may be a little different here and there, but you have lines like that throughout the Bible in lots of different places. God saying, I am your God, you are my people. Sort of a summary of the Old Testament. And what we have in the Ten Commandments, and especially in the preamble, is a longer version of that. God says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and now, as my people, this is how you will live. So this is a long version of the covenant that sometimes is shortened just, I'm your God, and you're my people. And they emphasize belonging. If you take one point away from the preamble to the Ten Commandments, is that God's people belong to God. We are owned by him. We are his. It's very complex, this ownership, but it's full. We belong to God. Or as we might say as Christians, we belong to God in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, everything belongs to God. That was true before God gave the Ten Commandments. And the giving of the Ten Commandments came shortly after the great plagues when God released the people from Egypt. And part of the point of the plagues that come shortly before the Ten Commandments is that everything belongs to God. If you look at the plagues and what happened and how they're described, for example, in Exodus 9, the plague of hail, it specifically said, this is a demonstration that the earth belongs to God. But the Ten Commandments go a step farther, that we don't just belong to God in the same way all of creation belongs to God. We belong to God as the people he has redeemed. Now, they, at their time, only had been redeemed out of Egypt. They didn't understand the full history of redemption yet. They didn't understand that Jesus would come 1,400 years later to die and rise again for our salvation. They had a limited revelation of God's redemption. But it was beginning. The process of redemption had started, and they were part of it, and now they belong to God. And as God's people, he gave them his commandments. Now... This is really the first part of the response to people who say the commandments are designed to earn God's favor, that if you want to go to heaven, you have to keep the Ten Commandments. They never had that function. Here we look at the first giving of the Ten Commandments. Well, that's in Exodus 20. This is the second giving in Deuteronomy 5. There's nothing here about us earning God's favor by keeping the rules. They're given to people who are told at the outset, you belong to God, I have saved you. And now, here's how we're supposed to live. They're written in stone to give an explicit, explicit character to what they should have known anyway. Uh, but it was crystal clear that the commandments were not to be used to earn God's favor. These were given to people who already belonged to God, who were already redeemed. They were redeemed in Moses, were redeemed in Christ, but they're given to people who already belong to God. 
Now, we read, the text we read this morning was from Deuteronomy 5. This is the second giving of the Ten Commandments. The first giving of Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai was roughly 40 years before, if I have the history right. The people that received it here were the children or grandchildren of the people who had been at Mount Sinai. And they were in a different situation. They had a different history. They had a different character. Uh, and yet, as God presents them the Ten Commandments the second time, it's a big group of people, two or three million, and they faced the existential choice of a lifetime. What are they going to do with the Ten Commandments? They knew that roughly 40 years before, their parents had failed in their response to the Ten Commandments. It wasn't much more than several weeks after the giving of the Ten Commandments that their fathers or grandfathers had made the golden calf and worshiped the golden calf, effectively destroying their relationship with God by that. And then shortly after that, when they were supposed to go into, Israel, into to Palestine to take possession, they had a mass panic attack because they had broken their trust in God. And so it is two, two million people marching toward their border and they all panic because their relationship with God was broken. Now, here we have the children and grandchildren. They're at the border about to go into Palestine and they are reaffirming the covenant with God. They get the Ten Commandments for a second time. They know their parents and grandparents failed utterly. And they face the choice of a lifetime that would shape their lives, their community, and their destiny. And they had to decide what they would do. Now, they made a good decision. In fact, part of the better decision they made than their grandparents and parents was openly declared in a special worship time they held shortly after this. I'm not sure of the, exactly the chronology. It may be several months later. But they had a special worship time in which they shouted out to each other, affirming their covenant with God and with each other. And that's entirely different from what their grandparents and parents had done 40 years before. Their grandparents and parents had built a golden calf. Now they have a chance to do something much better. Now, in a sense, I believe we are all in the same position as that second and third generation of Israelites. We are all facing this choice now and really all the time. Will we embrace the covenant God has made with our, us and our ancestors? Will we embrace it in faith and say, yes, this covenant God is my God. Yes, this grace he gives is for me. And yes, I fully accept his law. So we face the same choice, that we have to accept it and do that all the way. Now, I will assume that what I want us to do toward the end of our worship service is to stand up and do that together, that we will publicly to each other say to each other, yes, we, have, we accept this grace, yes, we accept God's commands, and we'll do that in a ceremony something like we do when we have new members or when... Uh, young parents bring their children to be blessed at church, that we will stand and say something to each other. But before we get there, I want us to think very hard about these commandments. So let's, this is what a process I call faith-seeking understanding. That we have the commandments here, and now let's think really hard about what's here. Over the next months, uh, we'll try to do this about each of the commandments. Think very hard about each one of the ten. But today we'll think about them as a whole, as all of them as a group. 
Now, what we've read here this morning in the Ten Commandments is different from the rest of the Bible. And the Bible itself distinguishes the Ten Commandments from the rest of the Bible. You see it in the text we read that they are explicitly described as a special piece of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, or in, in uh, Greek it was called the Decalogue, the Ten Words, that's where the word Decalogue comes from. Uh, but they were different in other ways. They were written in stone, the way nothing else was written in stone. Oh yeah, there were a few ancient treaties from that era in history that were written in stone, but they were written in stone because they were especially important, different from other written documents. So being written in stone established them as having a higher rank than anything else that was written. And when we read through the rest of the Bible, the other commands of God in the Bible seem to sort of build on or assume the Ten Commandments. They're not, most of them are not really so new, they build on what was already here. So the Bible itself distinguishes these Ten Commandments from the others. And the Ten Commandments have an enduring character in the way many other commands in the Bible do not. For example, in Deuteronomy 12:21, we read there's a commandment not to boil a calf in its mother's milk. Sounds a little strange. It was probably related to one of the pagan religious rituals of that time. Uh, I don't know of anyone who boils a calf in its mother's milk today, but if any of our pagan neighbors start doing this, we should follow this command and not participate. But that may never apply to any one of us in this room. There are other commands in the Bible that don't apply to many of us. For example, in Deuteronomy 22, there's a commandment that you must build a railing around the roof of your house. Well, that was intended for a very specific situation. If you're using the roof of your house as a patio, you want to make sure some kid doesn't fall off and get hurt, so you have to build a railing around it. So if any of us ever uses the roof of our house as a patio, be sure to follow this command of God and put a railing around it. But maybe you'll never have such a house yourself. But the Ten Commandments have a different character, that they seem to apply to everyone everywhere. They are universal. So then we should think about what roles or functions do the Ten Commandments have in our lives. Now, there are several, and I would suggest that there are at least three important functions or roles that the Ten Commandments should have in our lives. Maybe there's more, but if we see these three, and I didn't get this on my own. I've been reading about the Ten Commandments for a long time. What, I got here, what I've learned that was most valuable especially came from reading Luther and Kelvin some 40 years ago. Now, this is the way the question came up for Martin Luther, and I'd encourage you to read a good biography of Luther someday. Luther spent the early part of his life with dreadful anxiety, wondering how he could be sure of his salvation, be sure that he was standing right with God. And he did everything. He followed all the rules of the time uh, and was slowly being driven crazy by trying to find salvation. Then he studied the Bible and discovered we're justified by faith alone. By trusting in the promises of God that Jesus died and rose for us, Luther knew that we are justified, fully accepted by God. My shame, my guilt is transferred to Jesus. Jesus' cleanness, his righteousness is transferred to me, to my account. That's justification. A great release, a huge breakthrough for Martin Luther. But then he faced one more big question. How does God want us to live? Was it a priority for God, Luther asked, to continue with fasting, emphasizing monasteries, emphasizing chastity, emphasizing pilgrimages and indulgences, all the things that were popular in his day? And as Luther read the Bible, he said, no, those things are really not God's priorities. 
God's priorities are that we follow his commands. Uh, and Luther concluded that the Ten Commandments, uh, with the other commands of God in the Bible, form the moral structure for a life pleasing to God. If you don't want to know how to please God, well, the Ten Commandments have to be started, part of it. There may be more, but the Ten Commandments provide the moral structure for a life that's pleasing to God. Now, we're in the same situation as Martin Luther. I hope we all know we have been justified by faith so that we stand right with God. But how should we live? Uh, what are God's priorities for how we live? Well, at least for the moral structure of our lives, that's right here. The Ten Commandments should provide the, the framework for how we approach our lives. Now, there may be more, but there surely is not less. Uh, now, there's a, couple, there's a key word I want us to keep in mind as we think about the Ten Commandments. What should be our internal motivation as we follow the Ten Commandments? I think the key word I would suggest is gratitude or thankfulness. If we have a heart of gratitude to God for his gifts and salvation and, re, and creation and follow the Ten Commandments, we're going to be a long way in the Christian life if our lives are really filled with gratitude. In a sense, this is the opposite of what the unbelieving world is doing. We read the unbelieving world described, for example, in Romans 1, is that the key to their sin is ingratitude to God. The key to our life of faith, the internal essence of what motivates us, should be gratitude or thankfulness. Now, some of us have probably tried Luther's road. We've probably tried to find assurance of salvation by something we do or something we did. That's a common re recurring mistake. So we need to learn Luther's lessons, and every one of us needs to learn them. And it's good to talk about it a little bit. It's because of Luther's experience, we talk today more about the relationship between the promises of God and the commandments of God, or the gospel of Christ and the moral law of God. And I'll try to bring that up repeatedly, that that's one of the things we have to think about as we read the Ten Commandments, is the relationship between law and gospel. Excuse me. Now, there's a couple of things I should say as we're thinking about the Ten Commandments as a, a moral structure for our lives. One is that love and law go together. Now, imagine for a moment um, you love someone, but you also murder them or steal from them. doesn't work. You can't love someone or even claim to love someone, steal from them or murder them. Uh, love and law go together. Some people may want to separate them, but if you love people, you'll at least follow the Ten Commandments in relationship to them. So we have to keep those together. Uh, a second thing I would say about this um, law as a moral structure for our lives is that it helps our lives to flourish. Now, when I was a teenager, I spent a long time, as I recall, uh, asking myself the question, are God's commandments good for us or are they destructive of us? If I follow God's commandments, will that destroy me or will it help me to do well in life? I read verses like 1 John 5, verse 3. It says, his commands are not burdensome. And then I saw that that fits with the theme throughout the Old Testament that God's law makes life flourish. It's a form of blessing. So then, by, really, by faith alone, I said, okay, I guess I will assume that, that God's commandments are somehow good for us. If I follow God's commands, that's probably not going to destroy me as a person. 
That's what I concluded when I was 16, 17, something like that, thinking about these things. Now, almost 50 years later, I, I would approach this as no longer so much a matter of faith alone, but for me now it's a matter of faith and reason. As I've looked around the world for 50 years, the last 50 years, traveled through much of it, I see that God's law really does make life flourish for people. If people follow the Ten Commandments, generally speaking, their lives work out better. That doesn't mean they're free from illness and pain. Sometimes it gets them in trouble. Religious persecution is a huge problem. But generally speaking, if people follow God's law, just the Ten Commandments, life works out much better overall for most people. So that's, that really is a response to what I heard from some of my university students, that they thought if they followed these old commandments, it would destroy them. But I really think that's not true, that it helps life to flourish. Okay, so God's law provides a moral structure for a life of lived in faith. But there's another function, one we don't like as much, I'm sure, is that God's law shows us our sin. And for example, in Romans 3.20 we read, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, let's just say I drove down the street here at 200 kilometers per hour. Uh, anyone would know if that's terribly wrong. I'd probably kill someone driving that fast on a narrow, winding street. But it becomes more clear that it's wrong because we have written speed limits that say how fast we may drive in a particular place. The speed limit doesn't make it wrong, but it makes it more clear that it is wrong. The same is true with God's law. Uh, a sensible person will say, yeah, I know I shouldn't murder. It's somehow wrong. But having it on paper, or in this case, written in stone, makes it more clear and it does so in a way that confronts us with our sinfulness in a way that we're not quite so directly confronted if we just vaguely know that driving too fast is wrong or murder is wrong. That may be one of the reasons the commandments, so many of them, are phrased in the negative. Thou shalt not. Now, probably most of us don't particularly like that because it assumes that some of us have done exactly that. So that's assumed here. When we read the commandments that says, thou shalt not, it's assuming probably many of us have broken them. Uh, and we're being confronted in a way that seems a little harsh uh, so that we become conscious of our sinfulness. Now, in Christian history, it has been common to compare this use of the Ten Commandments with a mirror. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I like to look in the mirror about every two or three minutes to make sure I'm still as pretty as I was yesterday. <laughs> You caught the joke. More often, traditionally, Christians thought that the reason people look in a mirror is to see what's wrong with their face. They need to wash their face or comb their hair or something. Maybe that's what you, you heard your parents tell you to do. Look in the mirror and you see you need to wash your face. The, uh, the Ten Commandments have a function something like that. We see ourselves in the mirror and we see what's wrong with us. In a certain sense, we get to know ourselves in a way we don't like by looking into the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall not, and yeah, I sometimes wanted to do that. Uh, and this may occur at different ways at different points in life. Uh, when you first come to faith in Christ, you have to recognize your sinfulness. You, you have to say, yes, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness in Christ. But that also needs to continue throughout our lives as faith. Uh, because if we read the Ten Commandments and think about them more and more, uh, we'll see that we are sinful. 
Now, sometimes we have a very bad reaction. Uh, Paul talks about this. Sometimes we read the Ten Commandments and think, but that's what I want to do. I really would want to be able to do that. Um, Paul, in Romans 7, talks about the sinful passions aroused by the law. Sometimes we're confronted by God's law and we feel like, oh, but I really want to be able to do that. I heard a story once that has the ring of truth. There was a nice hotel built on an island in a lake, built so that the windows of the hotel were right on the shore. Uh, And the manager put no fishing signs by the windows. And yet he had repeated problems with broken windows, apparently broken when people were fishing from the windows of his hotel. So he called in an expensive consultant, asking for help, and the consultant said, well, why don't you try taking the no fishing signs down and see what happens? So he took down the no fishing signs, and the problem stopped. When there was no sign saying no fishing, it never occurred to anyone to fish from a nice hotel room. There, there's some of that in us. Uh, we want to go fishing because we're told we cannot go fishing. Uh, we read some of the more important commandments, far far more important than fishing and broken windows, and one of our reactions sometimes is, but I want to. It's good to notice that one of the things Martin Luther discovered when he was studying the Ten Commandments is that one of the functions of the commandments is to make us know our sinfulness so that we can be constantly repenting of our sin. And Luther saw that repentance in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is usually described as either an ongoing practice or something that is frequently repeated. So repentance isn't just one time, long time ago. It's part of the ongoing things that happen in our lives as Christians. Uh, And that's why Luther thought that repentance had to play an important role in worship so that we were regularly, so it became part of the normal stuff of our Christian life, that we were repenting of our sins as God's law points it out to us. So regularly, we need to be convicted of our sin as Christians. And that's part of why we should make God's law part of our lives, so that we would be prompted to repent. But there is still one more use of God's law. Uh, God's law can help restrain sinful actions uh, so that life goes better. Life flourishes much better when people are not murdering each other and stealing from each other and lying about each other and having adultery. Life just goes much better. It's much healthier, much much better in all sorts of ways. And that comes partly by God's moral law restraining our sinfulness. It doesn't always make us more sinful. It often has the other effect. For example, in Exodus 20, 20, we could read, the fear, of the, the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Sometimes we are restrained, effectively. Now, it would be nice to think all Christians follow God's law out of gratitude and out of love, but quite honestly, it doesn't always work that way. There are days when our gratitude may be running very low. Uh, at those times, you may obey God's commandments out of habit or just because your Christian, fellow Christian is expected of you. And, and that's good, in a sense. It would be terrible if you murdered someone just because your gratitude to God was running low that day. We need this restraining function in our lives. And the Bible was realistic about our motivations. 
So it may be good to just distinguish this restraining role of God's law as it functions among us as believers from how it functions outside believers in the unbelieving world. Uh, even among people who do not believe in God, who may have never read the Bible, often they have some awareness of, what, of right and wrong, and that does have a restraining effect, helps life go better for them. In Romans 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul writes, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are law unto themselves, even if they don't really have the law, since they show that the requirements of God's law are written in their hearts. Through conscience, people are somewhat aware of God's moral law. That's what I discovered of university students who claimed they were relativists, moral relativists, and yet turned around and said, oh, but we know we have to do A, B, and C because it's just right. Uh, and that's the way it is. People know a lot about right and wrong because it's written into conscience by God. One of the most morally sensitive people I have ever known was a man who claimed for most of his life to be an agnostic. Excuse me. Now, another way this happens is through law enforcement and civil expectations we have of each other. Even some very terrible governments have laws about killing and stealing that help life go a little bit better. And it's good to know because when you get to a situation where civil government completely breaks down, there will be some people who just go crazy and start killing and stealing and destroying. The war of all against all is a real danger. But this restraining influence, this helpful influence of God's law on society, comes partly by means of believers being mixed up in the world. Uh, in the... the Chapters before the Ten Commandments, both in Exodus 19 and what we read earlier from Deuteronomy 4, excuse me, there's a description of believers as a priestly people. A priest is a go-between who brings something back and forth. When God called the people out of Egypt and made them his own, he made them into a priestly people who would bring something into the world. And that's our job, too, to bring something into the world. It's not only the gospel of Christ, but it's also God's moral law. And when there have been times in Christian history when Christians have been really serious about God's law, that often has a ripple effect in the communities around them. So that there have been times and places where the community standards have changed dramatically and crime rates went way down. There was very little murder, there was very little theft, there was very little sexual assault because the Christian standards permeated the cultures around them. And that has happened at many places and many times in Christian history. God's people really are, many times, a priestly people, not only bringing the gospel, but also bringing God's moral law into society in a way that really helps things, makes things go much better. Uh, and we should be aware of that. That's part of the task God is, has given us in this world as believers. We should accept it. That's, that's why I write books about human rights, to carry on that function. Now, sometimes believers have had very, very negative feelings about God's law. That's probably, I think, because they, they're misunderstanding it. Sometimes, maybe some of you are in that situation. You, have very, you hear the word law of God, you have a negative reaction. Like, oh, no, let's not talk about that. Uh, it's because a lot of us are probably trying the way that Luther tried when he was younger, trying to earn God's favor, do something to make ourselves acceptable to God. But once we know what grace is all about, that we are forgiven and justified in Christ, we can have a different relationship with God's law. It's, it, yes, it's uncomfortable when it tells us we can't do something and we say, oh, but I'd like to. But that we also 
No, we've been forgiven in Christ, and God has given us a, a moral structure to give a, a wholesome life for Him. Now, I want to end with giving us a chance to respond in the way I think the people of this is similar to what, the way the people of Israel responded the second time. You know, the first time they received God's law, the results were bad. The second time was much, much better. And part of it was because they included a response. They had a big worship event, huge worship event, in which the people shouted back and forth to each other about the blessings and curses related to God's law. They made it into a major theme in their worship is how they would respond. It was a covenant they made with each other. And I would like us to do something similar to that this morning. Now, for us, it'll be a little bit more like we do when we have when a young couple brings a baby to be blessed in church, or what we do when we receive new members, we stand and say something to each other. And I would like us to do that in a moment here. Uh, I would like us to, in a, I'll tell you when, I'd like us to stand and say, yes, I accept God's grace and his law. So would you do that? Would you stand with me? And I'll ask you a question. We'll conclude with this. The right answer is to say, yes, I accept God's grace and his law. So, you, the people of God, the Lord your God brought his people out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He sent his son to be born as a baby, to live, to die, to rise again, and to ascend into heaven for your salvation. He sent his Holy Spirit to empower us to live for him in this world. Now, accept his gospel and his moral law as providing the meaning of your lives, the destiny to you, which you were called. What is your answer? Yes. yes. Amen. You may be seated.